Just a heads up that this podcast contains themes of family violence, which may be triggering. If you're listening in Tasmania where this podcast is made and you need support now, you can contact the free Family Violence Counselling and Support Service on 1800 608 122. Or you can call the 24-hour National Support Service on 1-800-RESPECT. If you're in an emergency, please contact triple zero. This podcast also contains some legal information which is not intended to be legal advice. You will find a list of legal services that you can contact for individual advice in the show notes. The wife had to get independent legal advice and so she came and saw me. It became quite apparent that she had no idea about the loan. She had no idea that she uh, signed these documents before. I told her not, not to sign the documents, not to give the guarantee, and all hell broke loose. Now that sounds like a tricky conversation. It's an example of what it might look like to step in when financial abuse is happening. How would you go? I mean, for most of us, it can feel pretty awkward to even talk about someone else's financial setup. So how do we do it well? Most lawyers don't have a problem with asking uh, someone to step out of a room if, we're, if we think they're um, adding any coercion or duress to the discussion. And if they don't step out, we just stop the discussion. How often do you do, you do that? It's only happened a few times. More often than not, I tell them just to, uh, could they mind letting someone else answer the question. So this voice belongs to Jeff. He's a lawyer who does talk about money with his clients. He deals with all sorts of things like property, commercial stuff, wills, powers of attorney, and he has stepped in. Hey, it's Penny Terry here, and on this episode of Rule of Thumb, we're going to talk about a form of abuse which family violence expert Torna Pittman says... Financial abuse is endemic. It's everywhere. You can almost believe that a lot of their transactions may be coming from a vantage point of someone's trying to gain financial upper hand. So if you're going to allow it, you're a bystander. Yeah, that is straight to the point. And this episode will help us work out if we allow it, even without realising it. Because the thing is, it's not just lawyers who help people manage their assets that see this. Everyone probably will. Because when you don't have control of your money and you don't have options around your money, your whole life is affected. Financial abuse is something that the lawyers at the Women's Legal Service hear about all the time. Let's hear some examples from Principal Solicitor Elise Whitmore and CEO Yvette Seatle. It can look like um, being made to make a application for a Centrelink entitlement that they might not have and therefore accruing a debt. It might look like assets being listed in the name of the perpetrator while the victim or survivor has all of the debt listed in her name. It can look like hiding money, not giving someone a reasonable living allowance to be able to do groceries, put petrol in the car, buy nappies. It can look like um, someone making really large purchases without the consent of their partner. 
And the other thing that I'd say about it, Penny, is that often um, economic and emotional abuse is at the start of a passion of family violence because often it's not just one type of abuse, it's a passion. And it starts with the non-physical forms of abuse where you might see the emotional and the, the financial abuse creeping in. Now, I'm sitting here in an office with two lawyers. Is it illegal? Is it illegal to do this sort of stuff with your money in your relationship? It absolutely is. So it is defined um, under the family violence legislation that came into effect in 2004. And it does come back to that definition of an intent to unreasonably control or intimidate someone. And there are some examples listed in the Act um, about things like disposal of property, um, not having an ability to participate in making decisions, um, not being able to access the joint financial resources of a relationship, um, not having the funds to meet what they call normal household expenses. So all of these things actually are listed in our Family Violence Act as offences. Now, I've already done a whole podcast pretty much about family violence and I, I still didn't know that. And I'd imagine that there are people listening going... Uh, uh, I'm the only one who can access our joint bank account. I'm in a healthy relationship. Does it only become illegal when there's a problem? It only becomes illegal when there's actually the intention behind the one name on the bank account um, being to control the other person. So if in a relationship, you decide that there'll only be one person that can sign to get the money because you know one person in the relationship's really crap with money, then that's okay. If it's a choice that the couple have made, and the key here is it's about a choice that they might jointly make about how they're going to manage their um, money, then that's okay. What's not okay is when one person does it to control the other person. So the key bit there is the intent. It's about the intent. That's right. Yeah. What do you need to prove this? Because that's the next step, isn't it? This has been um, a very difficult part of the Family Violence Act to prosecute. Um, it has had a limited number of successful prosecutions since its implementation in 2004. Why, why is that? What, what do you understand about that? It doesn't fit the definition of what we have understood family violence to be. Which is? which is that stuff that you can see from the outside, the physical assault, the damage to property, the things that leave a mark. And it's also much harder for the police too because our legal system's based on acts and incidents. So we look for acts and it's much easier for the police and quicker and more efficient and I might say for lawyers to actually ask about what they can see and about the physical aspects of violence and people seem to be more comfortable to talk about that and often don't get asked by police and lawyers about who makes all the decisions about money and if that's a joint uh, decision in that relationship or if that's part of the control as a feature of the relationship. So we're not very practised in asking those questions. There's, you know, the system has to take some responsibility and that includes us at the Women's Legal Service as well and we're working really hard to actually change that and to change our practices so that becomes a feature of what we ask about when women present in our domestic violence units. 
One of the things that the Women's Legal Service have done is to bring in a financial counsellor to support their clients, like Sandy Neal. You will have met Sandy if you listened to season one and heard some of the stories that women share with her, like this one. For example, I had a um, a client, she was around 60, and she had always run the house um, on a small amount of money that her husband would give her, and that was about $200 a fortnight. She had three children, raised them right through um, their lives, but only on that amount of money. She... Um, came came to see me and was absolutely terrified, just shaking and kept on saying, you know, you're not going to ring him, you're not going to ring him, you're not going to ring him. So what happened was that she took a credit card out because she just couldn't um, balance the household budget and um, she couldn't pay the credit card back. So I negotiated with the creditor and we got the whole amount waived. What did she tell you about why she knew now was the time to get some help. I mean, obviously the credit card debt, but what sorts of things came out about how she found herself in this situation? Well, it was all about fear. She was just terrified that he would find out that she wasn't doing a good job of the budget. So she just um, was just terrified because she didn't think she had the skills to manage on her own. So what do you work with your clients on to help to reduce that fear? and help them to realise they do have the skills? Probably in the last probably oh, five or six years maybe, since Rosie Batty, um, all the banks have started their own domestic violence programs and a lot of the creditors and they've all got packages that can support you to learn how to manage your money. So I've, I've speak to my clients about that Sandy has lots of expertise and lots of stories about this stuff. And you can hear more of that in episode six of season one called The Money Stuff. She does also have something that you can do now if you just want to check out your financial situation. Uh, You could probably get yourself a credit check, see what debts are actually in your name, because sometimes women aren't aware that their partners have taken out debts in their names. Um, How common is that? That's quite very common, very common. You know, they've been coerced to sign something or they don't, if people haven't got an understanding of, um, or if they're under pressure, they'll just do what they're told, not realising that they're probably signing up for a $50,000 personal loan or something. Um, Early in my days at Women's League, a lady came in um, who has three or four children, little ones, and she was living in a house that she shared with her ex-partner. It was a joint joint mortgage. He um, used to beat her up um, emotionally, financially, every every way you could think of, and she he left. Nobody really knew where he was. Five years down the track. Uh, monetary penalty enforcement service um, send her a letter saying that they're going to come take the house because his debts, his fines had reached a point where they wanted to take the, they needed the money so they were going to come and take the house. Well she didn't know any of this was going on so um, she came to us and um, she was terrified that she was going to be homeless so we talked it through and yeah, we negotiated with the monetary penalty people and um, they put a 
stop on the on the action and they are going to still pursue the, the debt and she will have to do a property settlement at some point but they're not going to move in and take, take the um, house. Now we tend to think of bystander action as someone stepping in front of a punch but it's not always. The creditors that are waiving debts when it's shown that there has been financial abuse, they're taking bystander action. Now, Sandy meets these women when they're at crisis point. Let's check in with family violence counsellor and researcher Torna Pittman about what financial abuse looks like at the start of a relationship. I don't think there's been one client or research participant that I've talked to who hasn't experienced some form of financial abuse. It can be as bad as not being allowed money, not being allowed a bank account, not even knowing what's going on financially, not being allowed to work. And it can be um, more um, moderate, if there's such a word, as being very difficult to talk over money with and um, being called a gold digger or something if she if she wants to have equal rights financially. So other institutions that talk to people about finances, such as accountants or when you go and create a will or when you're trying to set up a trust fund or when you're taking out a mortgage, all of those sorts of people who work in those financial institutions, it's so important for them to say, this arrangement you're suggesting isn't equal. It's not going to work for your partner, for your wife, and therefore I'm not happy to proceed with you. And to actually have bottom lines because that is how a lot of perpetrators work with financial abuses. They will just make things happen and the person who is uh, setting up the contract or setting up the debt or taking out the loan for them um, doesn't really understand that they're colluding with financial abuse of the partner. With the women you work with, is the disadvantage having their names on things and therefore being in debt or not having their names on things and therefore having no assets? Well, it can be either. See, it can go either way. When I'm thinking, I'm thinking about one, one person in particular, research participant from many years ago, everything was in his name, all the assets, but the mortgage was in her name and he, and he had all kinds of reasons why that happened. But I think the mortgage institution, you know, the institution that created that mortgage should have been checking up on that. And I know that that puts quite a lot of onus on them, but really if family, financial abuse is endemic, it's everywhere. You can almost believe that a lot of their transactions may be coming from a vantage point of someone's trying to gain financial upper hand. So if you're going to allow it, you're a bystander. Ooh, there's that line again. That is tricky to take on. And I don't know what your job is, but what I do want to say is that this isn't about having a go at anyone or making us feel guilty. It's about helping us to see something that we might not have known to look out for. Let's get some more examples from the lawyers at the Women's Legal Service, Elise and Yvette. She had been put in a position where she'd made some applications for Centrelink that she wasn't entitled to and put herself in a really tricky position in terms of having a debt with Centrelink um, and having to explain to them how that had come about 
why she had made that application, but that she had really been forced into a corner by her partner to do so. She wasn't being given any reasonable living expenses. Um, She had young children. She couldn't support herself in any way or support the children in any way without those additional payments from Centrelink. Um, And the consequences of that can be quite hard to live with, not just in terms of repaying a debt, but then also having the potential prosecution. When you say made an application to Centrelink, you mean that she was asking for money or getting money, receiving money that she wasn't entitled to? That's right. And the really frustrating thing for me about that is that the law doesn't hold the men that have created that situation accountable for aiding and abetting the commission of a crime because Centrelink fraud is a crime Uh, But the only person that gets punished for that is the woman who's responding to the family violence. And the other aspect of that is that often men aren't held accountable and aren't charged for the family violence that they've perpetuated on the family. So they're not held accountable for starving the family and their partner of funds, uh, but they are held legally accountable for the fraud and the men walk away scot-free even though they've aided and abetted the commission of a crime. How big of a problem is this across the demographics? That's a great question because as I've been sitting here I've thought at the other end of the scale I've had another woman sitting in front of me who was by all appearances, very wealthy, but had no assets in her name, had no property, had no access to bank accounts, had no means to leave when she wanted to. How easily can this happen? Can women find themselves in a situation of financial abuse? I think it's more common than a lot of people might expect, Penny, that all the assets are held or controlled by one person. And it can come about through initially just through people divvying up, um, you know, the tasks in the family and one person taking control over the finances. So in some ways, sometimes that can be happening in a healthy relationship, but then sometimes it may not be a healthy relationship. Well, the key to it really is about whether it's an agreement and it's a choice for one person to control it because it's quite legitimate for people to decide how assets are going to be held and who's a signatory to what account. But when it is everything being held by one person, then you're very vulnerable to this kind of abuse. I'm sure there are people listening now going, oh, gosh, what's my situation? How could this apply to me? I mean, what are some other things that the general public don't understand about financial abuse? That's a really good point, Penny, because this isn't just fights about money. So I think that's one of the misconceptions when I go out to talk to people is, oh, but, you know, me and my partner fight about the fact that I bought that handbag last week or that I spent too much money um, booking the holiday. And it's okay to have disagreements or arguments about money. What it really comes down to is what is the intent behind the control? Um, Is it being used to intimidate their partner? Is it an unreasonable control over the resources? Um, And that this can happen without people realising that it it is happening. Um, It can just be, like Yvette has said, the way that relationships are initially structured. So maybe mum will stay home with the children, she won't have access um, or she won't be earning her own money anymore and 
she's reliant then on one income into the household and it's how those decisions are made in relation to that income. It is really hard to not think about how our own money systems are set up within our households and relationships and how that sort of happened. I mean, consciously or unconsciously. How would you go unpacking it all with your partner or even with a lawyer? Let's check back in with Jeff, who we heard from at the start of this episode. He is a lawyer who is often having conversations with his clients about the money stuff and how assets are held and whose name is on what. And he finds that sometimes he does need to ask questions about the intent of his clients. Well, I suppose they're trying to organise their affairs, their partner's affairs or their mother or father's affairs. And sometimes you see them overstepping the mark. Sometimes you, you think they're trying to control things too much and you wonder why, especially if the parent or partner is able to do things for themselves. So it might be an example? Oh, well, they might, might want to um, run the bank account, decide who's going to be pulling money out, decide who's buying what, um, whose name's going on certain documents. Even, even so far as wills, um, people trying to say how the other person's will ought to be done. It's um, anything like that, or giving mortgages, taking mortgages over property, all things like that. So what sort of a conversation do you have around that then, Jeff? if you start to notice that something that's a bit, I don't know if the word's unfair or, or controlling starts happening? Well, I, I just like to make sure that everything's all above board. Um, if so, think something doesn't seem right, ask why. Ask why are we doing it a particular way? You know, do we need to do it this way? One of the things that always comes up is if something's wrong, it's, always, it's going to get righted eventually. It's going to cost money to get right. So I often pose the question, well, why are we doing it this particular way? Because if it's not right or if someone needs to undo it, it's going to cost money. What do you look at this kind of behaviour like? What word do you give it, Jeff? Well, I tend to think it's, it's a sort of an, an, an abusive situation. It's not a physical or violent that I ever see, but it's a sort of manipulation or control uh, in that respect. It's, it's abusing the trust that the person should otherwise have in them um, and just taking advantage of them. What do you think the ultimate goal is for the person who might be doing those sort of things? Either they want to actually control the other person's affairs um, or they are just so manipulative they don't realise what they're doing. They just think they've got to have it all their own way. And, um, yeah, and that just can cause grief, of course. But um, yeah, some, I, sometimes I suspect people do it without even thinking. I'm sitting here in a lawyer's office talking to you over a big desk. Um, what do you think the role is for lawyers? Because lawyers might also not realise what's going on. Well, our job is to take instructions from client and act on those instructions. And it seems to me that, that we should uh, examine those instructions fairly carefully. If we're not happy about those instructions, we should simply decline to do the job. Uh, I suppose what I tend to do is I tend to try and analyse a bit more and discuss through with the client and try and make sure they understand what's going on and do it a better way if we can. What do you think happens more generally in the profession, Jeff? Do, do people look a bit deeper? I sometimes wonder whether we're all too busy to actually stop and, and look things as, as hard as what we should. Sometimes it's just through experience you get to see these things and get to understand them more. 
I think sometimes you need to be a bit older and wiser to, uh, to see things, but also be prepared to call them out. When you're a lot younger, and I can remember, you were a bit sometimes um, uh, um, daunted by clients. You know, they'd come in demanding certain things and you'd say, if they'd say jump, you'd say how high, and, and that's the sort of way things worked. And, and only when you're older and understand what's really going on do you stop and say, well, hang on a sec, you know, that's not the way to approach it. And I recall one of my young colleagues, though, a while back, um, uh, she was asked to, uh, to make a will and she was concerned about it and she got the draft done and she was almost set to get it done. Then she had second thoughts and came and saw us and we discussed it and realised that the lady was being manipulated and um, we just didn't proceed. Hmm. With that in mind, what should be what should we be thinking about? What, um, you know, I guess is a fair and reasonable way to hold property? Oh, well, property ought to be held by those people who contribute to it, those people who pay for it or are given it to them. Um, you know, I have no problem with one person holding a title uh, in their own name if they've paid for it all. But if someone else has contributed to the purchase of it or contributed to its upkeep or contributed to its um, possession uh, by doing work to it or being part of an uh, arrangement or partnership that's contributed to that property, well, then Blind Freddie would suggest they should both be on title. What sort of things, what sort of discussions should we be having with our partners tonight, Jeff? after we've heard this? to make sure that the way we've set this up is fair and reasonable and we all kind of understand what's going on? Well, we should ask, uh, you know, who's on title, who who's, um, owes the mortgage, who, um, who's responsible for it. Uh, if I'm not on, on it, why aren't I on it? How do we go about rectifying it? And for other people, other colleagues, people that work in your profession, um, the idea, and I guess most of us think from the outset, that if you're going to go and see a lawyer about some sort of division or some sort of dispute dispute resolution, that you kind of want your lawyer to help you to win. Um, I mean, how what should lawyers be thinking about when it comes to that competition? Well, I think they should be thinking about the big picture as well, what might be going on behind the scenes. There's nothing wrong with... Um prosecuting your client's case and hard and, and as furious as you can, act in accordance with instructions, but also act with a fair degree of uh, independent uh, thought as to what's actually been going on there. Do you think lawyers need to do that better? Well, I suppose we could all do things a bit better. Um, uh, yeah, and lawyers are no exception. Perhaps none of us are exceptions. I mean, are you thinking about a certain person, maybe yourself, and what you know about the way the finances are set up and wondering now that perhaps it's not right? Noticing or even wondering can be the hardest bit. Here's what Torna Pittman sees. When a woman is in a family violence situation... Cognitively, mentally and emotionally, she's pretty hard at work and she may miss things and she won't necessarily be able to join dots. She won't necessarily be able to see what's going on. She won't. When we're in it, we cannot see it. It often takes someone outside to point it out. You mentioned before that um, what you hear is that women aren't allowed a bank account and they're not allowed access to money, they're not allowed this. What does that look like when women are told they're not allowed? How does that happen? This is where the coercive control comes in and the emotional abuse. When a woman 
a woman will object to that. She doesn't just agree to everything he says um, and she may, you know, question that and ask about that. But when they're living in family violence, there's a very powerful mechanism at play. She might try and question and then he will say, you know, talk talk her around as if there's something wrong with her for worrying about it. Why don't you trust me? Or, you know, what do you really think's going on? Or you just don't understand enough about financial affairs, so I'm going to take control of it. In other words, using words, if not actions, to make her feel silly or inadequate or that she's oversensitive or that she just doesn't trust him and he's wounded and hurt by that. Or he might be worse and he might say, um, you know, he might be more threatening and more, far more overtly demoralising of her. Now that, when you get that a lot, doesn't matter how clever you are, that process of talking you out of your own reality and your own needs and your own rights and your own concerns about your finances, it wears you down. And after a while you lose perspective and it can take someone else to say, "Mm, that doesn't sound right to me. That's not okay for her to get that perspective back and the validation of her instincts, which are often right on, right on track. When it comes to financial abuse, what do we as community members need to look out for? What would be a sign that it might be happening? A woman won't won't have enough money to feed her children, to pay the rent, to let her kids go to school activities, to dress her children well for school, to um, buy anything for the household. So that's on a very basic level. The other side of the coin is, is that she is made to be totally in control of all the finances. She's made to do all the bills, to organise everything. to um, And so the financial abuse plays out like um, she does all that and he will ask for money occasionally and then get really upset and tell her she's not managing the money properly if she says, no, you can't have that, we can't afford it, you know, we've got a budget. Oh, it's the way you budget your money. Now, very, like women of all ages, stages, occupations will get caught in that and think, oh, maybe I'm not budgeting the money well enough, maybe it is me, maybe I do need to do better, rather than to say, no, I'm I'm budgeting for both of us so that as a family we can really um, flourish. And when you spend the money like that, we can't flourish because it's all going, too much is going towards your hobbies and not towards the functioning of the family. It takes someone to say something to that woman And it's just letting her talk about it. You don't have to say any special words. You can just say, you know, to me, that doesn't seem right. That seems like it's unfair emphasis on you providing for him whatever he wants and not enough on how hard it is to budget for the family. So there are a few words that might help. Brad Beitzel, who is a social worker and counsellor who works with people in abusive relationships, has something else for you to remember in those conversations. We say to women who are facing family violence is we support your decision uh, if you wish to stay because that's another thing that men often say is, oh, why don't they just leave? Yeah, 
well, why don't you provide some free accommodation for them, uh, or the women in this case, because they uh, don't, they, those, those people don't have any insight into how hard the financial bind is for a woman who's got a couple of kids with this partner. And also, women often feel a deep sense of shame because um, I married or decided to partner a man who out there with my family and friends is seen as someone who's Mr. Terrific, Mr. Perfect. And I got it wrong. So I say to those people, to those women, it's not you, it's us men. And it's not right. It's okay to make the phone call. You don't have to leave today. If you choose to leave today, there are supports to help you. There are a number of free support services and you'll find those details in our show notes. But there is another issue that we haven't spoken about directly in this episode. And that's about women's ability to access support when they don't have access to money. You can hear more about that and what it may mean for access to justice in our first season. Check out episode six called The Money Stuff. Okay, so for our next episode, we're talking about a type of abuse that, well, it's just a lot to process. It just brings me back to one woman that I talked to who said that everyone in her mother's group consented to sex at least once a week just to get it over and done with uh, as a result of nagging, and that's how it was described. Now, I've no doubt that will start some conversations. I also heard this from Deborah Thompson, who was in an abusive relationship for 17 years. Um, I'm still suffering from trauma regarding the sexual abuse. So I had nightmares. That's what the nightmare's going to be about. The next episode is going to be tough, and I just want to remind you again to only listen to it if you're in a space and a place to do so. My name's Penny Terry. You've been listening to Rule of Thumb. It's a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. This podcast is funded by the Tasmanian Government's Department of Communities as part of the COVID-19 Family Violence Response.